Today begins like the second part of a to-be-continued episode that broke last week just when things were getting really interesting. Last week we heard Jesus give his first sermon, inspiring preachers everywhere with the brevity and the profundity of nine whole words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we found ourselves like the faithful in that synagogue, leaning in to every word Jesus said, fixing our eyes on him. In great expectation and anticipation for what would be coming next. And so, like those episodes often start previously on, elementary is what we're watching lately, but previously on the sermon in Jesus' first hometown, it's worth reminding ourselves that to preach the words from Isaiah to his hometown synagogue, to his relatives and friends, took tremendous courage for Jesus. Because in reading this portion of the Hebrew scripture, Jesus is saying, I am aligning my life with the understanding that Isaiah expresses. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me, has sent me on this mission of God to proclaim love and compassion for all of God's people, regardless of religion or nationality. This mission of being spirit-called and spirit-sent is the heart of Jesus' understanding about himself and all of his relationships. Jesus is on this Holy Spirit mission to bring about reconciliation, restoration, and renewal for everyone. This would be good news, yes? Yes, except maybe not if you're part of that first century congregation. We may also speak well of Jesus and be amazed at the gracious words that come from his mouth. But there is an inkling of something underneath all those gracious words that can prompt a defensive stance. Could you hear it? as Terry was reading the words. It starts to begin when the congregation says, this is Joseph's son. They love that about him. In Mark and in Matthew, not so much, but for Luke, Jesus being called Joseph's son was a point of pride for this community. This was the identity they saw in Jesus and sought to keep him in, keep him squeezed into this identity. Joseph's son, the son of their particular time and place and hometown. Jesus is their local boy who's gone off to make it big in the world and do something great with his life. But really, Jesus is theirs. He's their boy. And so they expect, whether they say it or not, that Jesus, their local boy, made big will come home and do something for his hometown that helped him get where he, where he is. But Jesus is not about to do that. 
Nope, not going to do it. Jesus does not recognize his human ancestry as a limitation to his spirit-filled mission, but rather a confirmation that in him the universality and timelessness of God has become particular. But not in an exclusive kind of way, in an available way. In Jesus, God has made God's self particular in order to speak the good news to every time and every place. So, of course, Jesus would want to come to his hometown to tell them about this first. To tell these people who loved him and nurtured him in spiritual formation, teaching him about the law and the prophets and the Psalms. How he understands himself in relationship to the expectation that the whole congregation recites every Sabbath. The Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. To remember that this God is the only God they need, and all that is required of them is to love this God. That's the expectations God sets forth, has ever been setting forth for the people. And so Jesus expounds on these expectations with how to show that love. That's where he pulls the words from Isaiah. And for Jesus, the how to show love for God comes down to relationships. You need a relationship with another person in order for them to understand your words as good news. A relationship cultivates trust that is needed to get close enough to someone to bind their wounds, to know what they are, and then to be able to meet those needs and do something about them. A relationship means you're close enough with someone to speak words of freedom and release to the things that bind them. And by words and deeds, declare God's love and favor not just for the year, but for all time. Relationships like this take time and effort and intentionality. And that is what Jesus came to embody, the intentionality of God seeking relationship with each and every single one of us. Except relationships are not really what the people wanted to hear. Not just back then, though, also now in our time as well. The central issue that comes up time and time again for congregations of old and of modern day is this do-for complex that we get when we get around Jesus. A do-for complex. Do for us what you have done for others elsewhere. I made that up. (laughs) So it may not go beyond this room. That's okay. (laughs) But the do for complex is something like this. 
we have certain expectations of you, Jesus. Reasonable ones. Ones that we have learned over generations of going to Sunday school and following the teachings of Vacation Bible School and GAs and RAs. We have learned how you expect us to be. We go to church. We give our time. We give our money. We stay inside the lines. And Jesus, we expect you to do the same. Meet our needs. Be our God. And we will worship you and live happily ever after. Do for us what you've seen others receive from you. Except that's never how it works, though, right? Jesus will not accommodate our do-for complex. He will not give in to our expectations that he will meet our every need in order to make our lives more comfortable. Jesus will turn those expectations on their heads every single time. He does it to his hometown congregation by telling them two stories where God's power was not only for the Jewish people, when God's power was not confined to the lines and boundaries of national values and ethnicity. But really, as we talked about on Tuesday at Free For All, these could have been any stories. Elijah and Naaman the Syrian were just two Jesus picked, but there are lots that remind us God's power will not be limited. Jesus could have reminded the people about Sarah's Egyptian slave Hagar and her son Ishmael being saved and cared for in the desert, and Ishmael also receiving a promise from God that he would become a great nation. Jesus could have reminded them about Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, who would become part of God's plan for establishing a king after God's own heart in David. David, who was in turn an ancestor of Joseph, and of Joseph's son standing before them. They could have been any stories because it's about God's power and expectations. So the anger of people over Jesus' words isn't because Jesus is now saying, God loves Gentiles, or that Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, and the people didn't like that. The people love that. They are angry because Jesus is not going to use that power in the way they want him to. Jesus will not be confined by their expectations of God. He is seeking to adjust those expectations and put them back in line with what God has always expected. But rather than accept the realignment. They seek to destroy the message and the messenger, to eliminate the disruption of their status quo and the narrative of being special and therefore able to make special claims on this God. And no one else can. In their rage, Luke says, the people sought to throw Jesus off a hill 
to take him to the brow of the cliff on which their town was built. Except Nazareth isn't built on a hill or a cliff. It's in a valley. It's in a bowl. It's interesting, my friend and fellow CBF pastor Alan Schraus from First Baptist Greensboro puts it this way, that topographical invention reveals theological intention. When when we are confronted with the truth about ourselves, we more often see cliffs that aren't there in order to push that truth off than face it, than face the expectation that we want God to be made in our image. We'll see things that aren't there to stay avoiding it. But the truth is this. Jesus refuses to be who we want him to be. He will not prove God to us. He will not do for us what are someone else's miracles. Nor will he give us the prosperous comfort we prefer so that Christianity is easy and we don't have to change. Jesus remains steadfastly himself, steadfastly God's beloved, who comes into our midst and declares that the scriptures have been fulfilled in him and through him. And then he goes on to create a new story that includes an invitation to us to follow and keep telling, keep adding to that story. Which means we have a myriad of ways to respond each and every day. We can listen, but not hear. We can hear, but not act. We can act, but not follow. We can be filled with anger at the disruption of the expectations we've held onto so tightly. We can be indifferent. Or we can. And I believe we are called to follow and contribute to that renewing, redeeming story of God's relentlessly faithful love coming alive each and every day. So may the same spirit that anointed Jesus, enabling him to speak the truth in love to those who loved him, And the same spirit that steered him through their reactions over realizing their expectations still needed work. May this spirit pilot us in prayer and draw us ever deeper into relationship with God and with one another as we follow him on the way. And all God's people said,